0: Well, those that travel to Mount Angel Abbey to take in the sights and sounds of the Abbey's Bach Festival, you can also take in the beauty of icons that are on display right now in their library. Iconographers trained in a program founded at Mount Angel Abbey have on display original Byzantine icons. Joining me today to share more of the details about this special event is the executive director of the program, Christine Schlesser. She's joining me today to fill us in on this wonderful event and also to teach us a little bit about what we should be looking for when we view Byzantine icons. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Brenda. I'm really thrilled to be able to share my love of icons with your listeners today.
0: Many of us who have looked at Byzantine icons, and there are icons in parishes, and we can look at them and go, okay, there are some unique features in an icon that are unique across the board. Share with our listeners a little bit about when they look at an icon, what are some of the features that make it stand out as a Byzantine icon?
1: Well, I'm going to use the icon of the mandulian as an example. Is be the first icon that you see when you walk through the doors. Um, This one is the one that all of our beginning students write as their first icon, and it is the Holy Face of Christ. Um, There are quite a few different names for this particular icon. Um, Most commonly, we call it the Holy Face, or the Mandelian, or the image not made by human hands. And this is an image in which we simply see Christ looking out at us, engaging us. And one of the features that you will always recognize or be able to recognize Christ is the fact that he is the only um, image in which we see a cruciform halo. Um, so you'll see the cross in the background, and he's got the characteristic images of um, what we would might see in the Shroud of Turin or depicted like on the veil of Veronica. So he's got long, flowing locks. Oftentimes his beard will have a little split and there will be like a couple of locks of hair on his forehead that are sort of symbolic of the drops of blood from the crown of thorns. And when you're looking at a Byzantine icon, it's not a naturalistic painting. And a lot of people think that the Byzantines didn't understand perspective or they were not skilled painters because they don't look natural, but that's not it at all. It, It involves an entirely different form of perspective than Western painting. And the icons are intended to bring you closer in instead of providing a vanishing point to take you off into a distance. Our eyes in Byzantine icons are also very different. They are intended to simply gaze out either at you or above you, and no matter where you walk, they still seem to be there. And there are bright highlights in the face that are not coming from an outside light source. They come from within, because everyone that we depict in icons is in their glorified state. So... The interior light that you see is divine light. And so you will see that like at the top of the cheeks and around the eyes, um, around the nose, around the ears, and on the seat of wisdom, which is up at the forehead. So wherever one has heard the word of God or spoken the word of God or seen God, that's where you'll see the bright lights. And also another characteristic of Byzantine iconography is that we don't use a lot of curves. We make curves with straight lines or broken lines. And that's just a style that came from uh, the East that was then carried forward in the Russian tradition, which we followed. And we actually follow the the Russian tradition primarily because um, as art developed in the West, Russia was so far away from the Renaissance that it wasn't affected by it So the Byzantine style was most preserved in the Russian iconography. So that is the style that we teach at the Classical Iconography Institute.
0: Christine, do we know where or how old the oldest icon is that started with this form that in history become this Byzantine style? What's the oldest one that the Church knows about?
1: Well, um, a lot of our very oldest icons were destroyed during the period of iconoclasm which was um, in the 7th and 8th and ninth centuries. It actually came back twice. But there were some icons that were outside of the Byzantine Empire because of um, the Ottoman invasion. And so those were actually preserved. And so the oldest extant icon that we have right now is at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. And it's called the Sinai Pantocrator or Christ Ruler of All. And it's a very interesting icon. A lot of people say, well, maybe the iconographer wasn't very skilled because the left eye is entirely different from the right eye. But it is actually what we call the first psychological portrait of Christ. If you cover up half of Christ's face, you'll clearly see Christ the judge. If you flip over and cover the other side, you'll see Christ the peacemaker. And it's a really beautiful icon of of um, both his human nature and his divine nature. And in it, he's giving the blessing and holding the gospel book. So it's really, um, it's a beautiful icon. And it, it was in the one method that preceded egg temper iconography, which we teach, called encaustic. So they used all the same dry pigments that we use, but instead of suspending them in egg emulsion, they suspended it in hot beeswax. And there are, are, you know, uh, probably a couple thousand icons that were preserved at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. And so those are the oldest icons that we know, and they're actually um, digitally viewable, I believe, through Yale. And so that you can go and take a look at that particular icon, and it's even on Wikipedia because it's the most well-recognized ancient icon
0: christine schlesher is joining me today she is the executive director of a wonderful icon program founded at mount angel abbey and you have the opportunity to view some of those icons they are on loan by their artists people that have been through the program and you can see this beautiful work christine You just mentioned there a moment ago about this egg tempera. Talk a little bit about the colors that were available. It seems like perhaps maybe colors that we have today weren't necessarily available in the right forms, but what are you using to create the icons that kind of reckon back to an ancient form?
1: Oh, the the pigments are so exciting. Everyone gets very energized when they learn about our pigments. Um, Even though they are very ancient, there are so many colors available to us. We um, use pigments that are from natural um, sources. So they would be like natural earth ochres and ground minerals. And there are are up to 500 different shades of natural earth ochres. So there is no shortage of color available to us. And also ground minerals. And in order to keep up and preserve this ancient art form, uh, we use the pigments that we source from a shop in Florence, Italy, that preserves um, this ancient art form for the Uffizi as well. Um, It's a store um, right down the street from the Duomo called Zecchi's. And we have used their pigments um, since, oh gosh, the last 30 years, because they are the most true to the original historic pigments used. So lots of different shades of brown and gold and green and even blue earth. Um, there's a really fabulous blue that comes from one place in the world in Russia. And there's so many different shades of green. And But the most exquisite and probably the most expensive that was used historically was derived from lapis lazuli. And the name of it in in iconography or in other art forms, is called ultramarine. And that just meant from across the sea, because it came from Afghanistan. Wow. And surprisingly, ancient people traveled a lot. We don't, I don't think we fully understand how mobile they were. And this was a pigment that was traded, and it was worth more than gold at the time. So you could often judge the value or the, I should say, the worth of the the value of the patron because they would underwrite um, a, a piece of work and dis- and actually contractually say how much lapis had to be in there. So generally, we always paint the garment of the Virgin Mary with lapis because it's a very precious color and it's blue, which is her color of divinity.
0: Oh, I love that. Some of what you will be able to experience is what Christine is talking about in a very unique opportunity for people to come and view icons at Mount Angel Abbey Library. Christine, this has been a fascinating conversation. There is more I want to talk to you about, about these beautiful icons. I'm already coming up against our break. Can you stay with me through the break so we can continue in our next half hour?
1: It would be my pleasure.
0: And I'm back speaking with Christine Schlesser. She is the executive director of a beautiful iconography program that was founded at Mount Angel Abbey. Icons are on display now, and it's an opportunity for you to gaze upon very beautiful art form within our church. Christine, thank you so much for staying with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. Christine, we began to talk in our first half hour about the history of icons and some of the beautiful pigments that are used. But this is beyond a mere painting of an image, and it's often used the term written when talking about iconography. Can you explain that to us more?
1: Yes. Uh, We say we write an icon because icons depict the Word of God in paint, and they all represent the Word, no matter who the subject is. Um, It's also a direct translation of um, of the word iconography from Russian to English. So it's both a practical and a symbolic term. But I would say we say write because we are writing the gospel, and the gospel is a word.
0: Christine, these beautiful images are on display there at Mount Angel Abbey. Tell our listeners a little bit when they come down to visit what they're going to see and whose artwork this is.
1: Oh, well, we have over 60 icons on display here, and they range from our most advanced students are in the, um, on the panels here uh, to iconographers who have been affiliated with the Iconographic Arts Association or Institute here at Mount Angel since the early um, 80s. So they're professional people who are taking commissions for um, churches and for individuals. But we also have a wall of icons in the back, from our student classes right now, and people can get an idea of what can be expected to be learned in a beginning class, in a level two class, and an intermediate class, and they're all on the back wall um, on the large panels um, facing the library. And inside the the display, you'll see Archangels uh, Michael and Gabriel, um, St. Nicholas, different um, Pantocrator icons, and of course, um, our Mother of God. Um, there are a few interesting um, subject matters, too, of like the conversion of St. Paul. It's a very unusual one. We have a really lovely Our Lady of Guadalupe and several different versions of St. John the Baptist in which he is shown as the warrior or the athlete of God. And in that icon, he is portrayed with a really big chest, like he has, this shows endurance, that he can really run the distance for God. And people will look at it and say, why are his arms so skinny? Well, that is symbolic of his ascetic life. He's also wearing a camel hair hair shirt and holding his staff of authority. So whenever you see something in iconography that strikes you as unusual, it's, just, it's there to take your attention to that. And it's symbolic of a bigger topic. So it isn't that we didn't know how to draw an anatomically correct arm. It's to show that he made sacrifices for us being an ascetic.
0: Christine, when people are viewing these uh, pieces of art, and you said the different panels, is there a special type of base, and how are they learning what to put these icons onto?
1: Yeah, I'd love to tell you about that, because that's a really unique feature of an icon. Um, our icons are written on on wood, and it's a special kind of wood. It's made from a non resinous type of wood. It's linden wood. And in the back, often you'll see these protruding pieces of, of wood. And people often think, well, what, I better tap that in. It's not flush with the frame. I've had people try to do that. Those are actually there to stabilize the board so that if in a 100 or 200 years it begins to warp, there's an, another piece of wood behind it made of a hardwood that they would tap in and that would straighten the board out. And that's how over the centuries... Um, the icon panels would stay straighter in the church setting because wood has a natural tendency to work, still be alive. So when we get the wood panel, we prepare the panel uh, by creating gesso. And we cook gesso um, from rabbit skin glue, powdered marble or calcium carbonate, and beef gelatin. And it's an old recipe that, um, is in a manual that we often follow, and it's uh, from the fifteenth century. and it's it's written by an artist, and it kind of contains all the different recipes that various artists over the times have used. And we teach our students how to do that in the summer. we And we have a little pay it forward program where every student makes a board for another student because that was made for them. So after we we cooked this gesso, um, it's very thin, and we apply it with a with a brush to the panel. And as it hardens, it gets a little thicker, almost like a like a opaque gelatin. And then we'll rub that into the board, and there'll be 10 to 20 layers on every board, which then gets sanded down to the finish of almost like a high polished marble finish. And that is really important to reflect the light, because when you're looking at an icon the pigment that is on there is designed to be completely transparent. An icon might have 200 transparent layers of pigment on it. It's not a quick process. Wow. And after every transparent layer, there has to be a drying time. And so what do we do while we wait for paint to dry? We pray. (laughs) And so every one of these icons is infused with prayer. And after it's all dry, You'll see a luminosity that you won't get from a regular, say, oil painting because of that beautiful gesso background and the transparent layers and the light going through all of those layers to the base of the gesso and then reflecting back to you.
0: Wow, I I am amazed. I never even considered what goes into just creating the wood in which that would receive the, the pigments and everything to create an icon. That is absolutely fascinating. And to know how old these recipes are that creates all of these things. That is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Now, there are some people listening to that think, I would love to know more about this. Do you have this class available to anyone who wants to participate? Or is this something specific? to those attending Mount Angel Abbey?
1: No, we welcome anyone who would love to seek truth through beauty to come to our program. Uh, we are, um, all of our classes are posted at classicaliconography.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit fine arts educational institute, and our objective is to train those who really wish uh, to to pursue this calling to become proficient enough to be able to create icons for for prayer and liturgical use. So we offer um, a fall program that is 14 weeks long, once a week, two and a half hours a night, and usually by the end of 14 weeks, um, an icon will be finished. We also offer the one-week intensive retreat here at Mount Angel Abbey because this provides an opportunity for people who maybe live outside the area or have a week of vacation that they'd like to devote, and they can come here and be in the abbey setting, in a monastic setting where iconography was born. So uh, we offer two different options, and our fall classes will be posted here in the upcoming weeks. Um, we are moving temporarily over to a new location of um, on the campus of Holy Rosary, and so we welcome students to come. We do have to limit the class because of size. And so I would encourage anyone who's interested to check into it quickly because usually our classes sell out.
0: I could imagine so. That is fabulous. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Boy, I feel like there was so much more to talk about for our listeners. Please, I encourage them to come down and see the display there at Mount Angel Abbey and to check out your website as well. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to share this beautiful sacred art with your listeners.
0: And again, that is Christine Schleser. You're going to be able to find more information about the display and also on how to sign up for upcoming classes. I will be sure to add the links that she was talking about. You're going to find those links on the podcast of this interview, matradayradio.com and the Hail Mary media app.